My guest today is Emmett de Monterey, a psychotherapist and author with an extraordinary story. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Emmett de Monterey, a psychotherapist and author with an extraordinary story. At just 18 months old, Emmett was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, and as a child of the 1980s, his diagnosis and subsequent physical challenges were not easily accommodated by the world around him. Case in point, at his school, the staff refused to reschedule his classes to ground floor classrooms, and he was forced to climb stairs at huge effort to attend his lessons. Hope was on the horizon when, age 12, Emmett was chosen for a first-of-its-kind surgery in America. The world's media turned their attention on Emmett and his family and this potential miracle, but it wasn't the fairy tale ending Emmett was expecting. And at Sixth Form College for disabled students, his sexuality became an issue, and he was even told that if rumours circulating about him that he was gay were true, then he could be expelled. Being able to be authentically himself is something Emmett hasn't always felt able to do, and a huge part of his journey has been reckoning with a world which views disabled people as invisible and unworthy of desire. I always say on this podcast that it's getting to see the world through my guest's eyes that I find so inspiring, and I'm delighted to be learning Emmett's life lessons today on The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Emmett. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm delighted to be here. You're so, so Welcome. And it's such a fascinating and interesting story. And let's just unpick something there in that you were what 12 years old. The world's media is focused on you. This is like a miracle game changing operation that you're going to have. And you kind of you went viral back when things didn't go viral. I did. I did. Um, yeah, it was a very, very odd situation because I was selected. I was selected for this surgery, as you say, and um because it because the technology was so unusual, it was a really big story. And um, you're a journalist yourself. You know about how often the media narrative is different from the reality that, that is happening. And the surgeons in America were quite, yeah, they were quite surprised by the level of attention. I mean, I was traveling with a documentary crew, news crews, um, the representatives of the charity that I was a fundraising figurehead for. And the surgeons always said to me that what we're talking about is improvement in your gait, improvement in the way you walk. And, um, you know, you should be able to walk well into adulthood once we've done this. But the media narrative um, was that it was it was this. I remember one headline from the South London Press that said, boys, sci-fi bid the walk. Oh, wow. Um, and as a as a twelve year old who just wanted to be like my friends, I I chose to believe the media take on the situation, 
and the surgeons um, hadn't misled me at all. So they were quite concerned that I had very different expectations of, of what was going to be achieved. So it was so quite a... Sorry. Yeah, so they're trying to be very realistic with you. This is what we're going to do. This is what this is the potential outcome. This is what life will look like on the other side. Yes. And the media are, are spinning a... It, it will be some sort of... It will be a miracle, essentially. Yes, yeah. And actually, one of the working titles for the book was... Um, miracle boy and i rejected it because i was like um one it doesn't seem as though it could be seen as ironic and it mm. felt a bit it just didn't feel right but uh yeah it was a very it was a very difficult time it's a very peculiar but i should say that the, the journalist that we traveled with we were a very small family we were only three and the journalist that we traveled with actually became friends and showed me enormous care and friendship and consideration. So it's not really their fault either. It was just the story that they were tasked with telling. Well, because... it's like anything, isn't it? They want you, you want the world to think that miracles are possible. And it's a great story. It's much, it's, it's going to sell more papers than operation might work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 that. Um, it's it's just slightly easily digestible and it's like one of the shows that I was listening to in preparation for coming on and speaking to you today about toxic positivity mm. and very very often people prefer a simpler message don't they and I, I remember you said you know something about live laugh love and it's like well if only it was that easy and actually things are a bit more nuanced than that and most of us find it a lot more complicated well, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think you're referring to the conversation I had with Whitney Goodman. She's she was yes, amazing. Yes, Sit with Whit really on Instagram. Um, and I, actually, I found that conversation really validating for not having a sunny disposition. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> actually a bit, bit more realistic, isn't it? One hundred percent. And actually, sometimes I don't know whether you find this, but. If you don't have a sunny disposition all the time, you can sometimes feel like that you're being blamed somehow by our culture or, or the onus is on you to be endlessly positive or, you know, spin situations, which can be very, very difficult, actually. So, mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Well, listeners, go back and listen to that conversation with Whitney because it was really interesting. But um, we've talked about your operation, so it's a really good point at which to come into the conversation. Uh, I asked my guests to talk to me about their relationship with risk first off. Mm. And I know that specifically your answer is about the operation deciding to have this operation when you were 12. Yes. You had some agency in that. But um, I wonder now, as a grown man, how you would characterize your relationship with risk and how it was informed by such a big life, potentially life changing operation at such a young age. That's really interesting. It's really funny because that temperamentally, I'm very risk averse. You know, um, I don't know whether it's because of that operation or because of that decision. But but having grown up, I've, I'm I'm quite a cautious person. And I like to assess things in quite a, as much as you ever can. I like to sort of look at things from both sides and try and figure out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember when I was when we we as a family were talking about the operation. My mum said, "It's completely up to you. We won't do we won't do it 
if you don't want to do it because you know obviously life in a wheelchair is fine you know um you can we can learn to navigate that you can learn to embrace it you can um but if you want to do this then we're behind you 100 percent. and um i'm wondering whether yeah whether that has actually yeah it has informed my my um relationship to risk because it felt like yeah physically it felt like something quite difficult to do and yeah and mm. again I think the risk wasn't just physical it was about my expectations yes so, but perhaps that was something you only really realized after the fact yes I mean that's the thing isn't it I don't think you can figure out how, you you can't work out what everything's going to pan out like you you have to sort of take a gamble at certain points mm. and and kind of go well if I don't do this then what's life going to look like and if I do what's it going to look like so um yeah it, it was it was difficult and it has made me I think um much more cautious and as you said um yeah just slightly more um what was it Oh, sorry, sorry, I've lost my lost my thread a bit. Um, yeah, that that sort of um, not having a sunny disposition. Yeah, you no, know, being a bit more realistic about the way things can be. Do you remember when your family said to you, "We'll support you, whatever decision you make"? Do you remember what your decision making process was? Do you do? You, can you sort of uh, put yourself back in that position and just yeah, thinking, oh, I, I just want it. I've thought about it a lot subsequently and I thought about it a lot um, in the context of my own psychotherapy training as well. Mm. Um, I really wanted at that age just to be like my friends. You're a, you're a child. You just want to be like the people around you. I was very lucky. I had a, a group of close friends. I, I was in a mainstream school at that time and I just wanted to be like my friends so badly. And actually... Um, I would have done anything at that point to try and be like them. I just mm. wanted, I was so aware of the growing distance between myself and the world. I was so aware of my, diff you know, as people are growing up and they're beginning to kind of experience themselves in a different way, I was, I would watch them playing football and watch them playing rugby. I went to a all boys public school at that time. So it was very, there was an emphasis on on the physical side of life and i just wanted i just wanted to be that so badly so in a sense even though i did think about it i was also quite cavalier because my internalized ableism at that point was so pronounced and i didn't have the language or a way to accept myself as a disabled person because i was the only disabled person at that point that i knew you know, I was the only one in my school. I was the only one in my friendship group. And I just wanted to be like everybody else so badly that I was prepared to do anything. Mm. It's really, it feels really difficult and perhaps clunky and um, clumsy to make this, to draw this parallel. But I think at school, and again, this is through my own therapy, you can't really blame kids for mm. bullying you because I think all kids do is they point out the thing about you that makes you different yes that's yeah. kind of like the social cohesion of how kids work so listening to what you're saying I can completely uh, understand 
But I think I think a lot of people in school go through that experience of the thing that is different about them is the thing they want so much to change. And it makes them feel as though it's why they can't be part of the group or part of the tribe. And it could be, obviously your situation is very, very different. I'm not trying to minimize it, but I, I have had similar tones of conversations with friends about the fact that you wanted to wear the same clothes as people or the mm, fact that mm. I was one of a handful of Asian girls in my school meant that I, that was a point of difference. And I was overweight. That was a point of difference. And so all mm, of the things mm. that you have about you that are different, they do, they feel like these huge barriers and they put this huge distance between you and being able yeah. to have a quote unquote normal life. Yeah. They're really amplified at that age, aren't they? Mm. For whatever reason, they're really, really amplified. And um uh, have you ever have you ever been in touch with any of the people that you went to school with and and got a sense of what their experience was like and has that given you any comfort to hear that maybe it wasn't all rosy for them? Well, really weirdly, um, the the boys' public school that I started off at started my secondary education in. I had a profoundly positive experience of, and I wasn't bullied at all. In a way, I was sort of the school mascot, and I was really. I was really well taken care of and really well liked, which I have to say I wasn't expecting mm. um, because it was a very masculine culture. It was a very, so it was a real surprise to me. It was a pleasant surprise. But when I had to leave that school because the physical demands of the building were so difficult and and, and the teachers said, well, he's just not going to get the, G the GCSEs that we know he's capable of. When I had to leave that school and go back into special education, the place where society told me I belonged um, in this segregated environment, actually, I've never felt more lonely and I've never had a more difficult time. Um, and it was really unusual because for those pupils, it was the place where they felt that they belonged the most. And for me, it was the place where I felt I belonged the least. And they had an experience of community that I didn't have. And also to them, I was the boy who had been on the telly mm. flying to America to get my legs changed, to get my disability changed. So they were quite angry with me about what they saw as a betrayal of my disabled, betrayal is probably too strong a word, but a, a problematic relationship with my disabled identity. Mm. And if you add, if you add to that, the fact that I was quite clearly you know um realizing that I was gay then it was a it was a pretty toxic environment to be in did you feel lost then did you feel you had belonged and then you didn't and you didn't know what the future was going to hold I sort of it weirdly I don't know whether this is my own internalized ableism that I had at the time but I really felt like um I really felt like I um belonged more in the in the more traditional school with my public school peers and I really was embraced and treated mm -hmm. kindly and also I have to be honest at that point as we've sort of touched on previously I didn't want to be disabled so mm. being in a disabled school it was like looking in a mirror that I couldn't that I couldn't look away from I finally had to face myself and go you don't look like your friends at the other school you you are disabled you walk with crutches you do look like this 
and this is this is how life is going to be from here on in so i kind of had a quite a profound psychological transition of like having to try and accept myself and my body as i was you know and that was a parallel with kind of figuring out that i also might be gay did you it was interesting you saying there about internalized ableism and you feeling more in common with the friends at the public school than at the specialist school was there do you think actually that that in any way helped you in the long term the fact that you went to a school where actually even though you were in the minority you were treated as an equal do you think that yeah yes really really good question um it made me understand that there were going to be people that would embrace me and that actually my disability was more of a problem for me than it was for a lot of my friends you know and and I had a particularly good female friend growing up um and she used to say I mean it was very well-meaning but um she used to say oh but we don't think of you as disabled you're just like us Mm. and that was in at the height of my internalized ableism that was like music to my ears but having reflected on it I now feel I mean obviously I'm not criticizing her she's a lovely person but having reflected on it it's like well why don't you see me as disabled why can't you embrace my disability as part of me and and a meaningful part of me you know because because it is you know so so I've I, I suppose I've learned to embrace it in a in a very different way I think that touches on a much bigger thing as well about how uh, the vocabulary that we've used around certain things has really changed. Yes. And that's a really good point. Back, what would that have been, the late 80s or early 90s? Yeah, it was kind of late 80s, early 90s. That would have actually been a very kind and generous thing to say to somebody because the acknowledgement is, well, I know that there's something that potentially works against you in, in life, but I don't see it because I think I, I don't and I can completely understand that train of thought. But we've come on so far in how mm, we talk yeah. about so many subjects that actually you're right now, something that was very kind and generous and well-intentioned now has a slightly uh, different meaning and interpretation. Yes, exactly. And I think you're I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. Our language and our thinking around disability is evolving. Like, for example, the concept of ableism didn't exist when I was when I was a kid. I mean, and we didn't even really talk about disability discrimi- discrimination. Just, mm. you know, it wasn't in the language. Um, so it is, you know, and and if you look at the media landscape as well, you have high-profile um, disabled figures in the media, like Rosie Jones and Alex Booker, and you have. Um, you know the the Paralympic and Paralympics and disability sport is much higher profile. So things are changing slowly, but they are changing. Did you ever, um, when you were younger, did you ever say I am disabled, or was it something that you didn't want to own? And how has your vocabulary around how you describe yourself changed as you've come to terms with who you are and what your place is? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I found it very difficult to say I am disabled. I remember actually, and I write about this in the book, I remember actually saying to myself that I was gay and I found that easier to say than I did 
to say I am disabled, which is really weird because my disability is is a very profound visible difference. I walk with crutches. You know, obviously, it's one it's one of the first things, if not the first thing that anybody will notice about me. So I was much easier with with denying it, even though it was such a profound difference. Um, then I was about de denying my de my sexuality. My sexuality to me was a lot easier to accommodate than my my physical difference. And I don't really know why that is. But I I think it was just something I didn't want so much. And mm. that that's now that I'm in a different place, the that feels really sad to me that I spent such a long time rejecting something that is intrinsic to to my body and myself and my sense of self you know it feels like a real wasted time I suppose that that makes my mind jump back to what you said about the coverage of you and the operation back when you were 12 and that I could completely understand why there would be a reluctance to own that about yourself mm. and to accept it when you were the boy who was going to overcome it he was going mm. to be disabled mm. when they went under anaesthetic and would come out not disabled, mm. essentially, which mm. is mm. which is what was spun. I know that's not what the doctors told yeah, you, but yeah, that was what was spun. And no, as a 12-year-old, I can completely understand if you would have believed every single word that you read and hoped mm. that it would be true. Oh, I hoped so much, Emma. I hoped so much. I remember my grandmother was staying with us when, when the bandages and the, and the cast came off and I had a bath because obviously I hadn't been able to have a proper bath for a really long time. And they left me on my own just to get used to my, just to see my legs and to get used to how they felt. And I remember, and I write about this too, I remember looking in the bath and, and just thinking, this is not going to be what I thought it was going to be. This is just not going to be. I just, in that moment, I just thought, um, I, I say in the book, you know, I would still be walking on my hands. I might have changed, but I'd still be balancing on my hands. Mm -hmm. And it was a profound grief, to be perfectly honest. Um, and again, I can blame nobody for that because it was what I, because it, it had been what I had interpreted. But I remember just looking at my legs and thinking, they've changed, but they haven't changed that much. And they haven't changed, you know, in the way that I need them to. So that was... Really, you, really difficult. Were you able to communicate that at the time? No, no. Mm. I I went very inward. I went very inward. Um, and also I was very, very dependent on my family for my physical care. So I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want... To, I was very aware that they were working very hard to mm. look after me. You know, my parents were both out of work, earning a living. My grandmother and... them I couldn't upset them because they were looking after me and also I loved them very much I didn't want to I didn't want to upset them more than I was already that's um, a huge emotional burden for a child to bear because yeah. you're having your own experience and you're also it being extremely mindful of the people around you that that's actually mm. that's that's a real burden Emma mm. it really it didn't feel like one at the time because mm. as you say, I was only I was very young and it just yeah. was 
kind of natural behavior to me then is looking after other people and kind of looking after their feelings around around what I was going through but looking back on it I can see that it was it was a huge thing to to undertake really it's difficult I'm curious as well about what you would how you would describe now with the many years of hindsight that you have how you would describe fame and what it was like to go from relative obscurity to being on the cover of newspapers and magazines to be the subject of television programs Mm. and not just in local press but in national press and international press and the impact that that had on you and what you how you feel about that kind of thing generally now having gone through it at such a strange time it's really strange because I I was was in my early 20s when things like pop idol were at their height (laughs) were at their height and it seemed like everybody wanted to be famous you know, for and and again, you know, fame seems to be the goal now. It's it's not about being good at something or being celebrated for for being a good writer or a good journalist or a good people just want to be famous. And I and I think as a culture, that's kind of where we still are. You know, mm-hmm. everyone can be famous now. It's been democratized by Instagram, by you know, the the media landscape we're in has really changed. And I find it so bizarre. You know, I want to be known as a good writer. That's my hope, that people like like the book and they respond to it. I don't want to be famous. I don't understand why anybody would want to be famous. I think anonymity is so precious. And you only, a lot of celebrities have spoken about this. You only realise how precious anonymity is when you don't have it anymore, when it's too late. So, yeah, I think fame is, is incredibly... Yeah, it's 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 a false it's a false god. It's a false idol, I think. Definitely. It's interesting as well what you say about anonymity because you only realize how precious it is once it's gone and yet how many celebrities get their anonymity back and it's somehow it's tarnished. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and they don't yeah, they have a very ambivalent relationship to their fame. They don't really want to be famous, but they don't want to be anonymous either. So they're in this kind of bizarre hinterland. Where, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's difficult. It's I was you said hinterland. I was thinking like cling film. Like cling film is great, but if you stretch it too far, you can't stretch. You can't unstretch it. It's and it's true. like that. Fame is like that. Once that's it's a really stretched. good image. That's a really good image. <laughs> the tensile strength of uh, cling film is basically <laughs> what fame is perched on. Yeah, okay, so yeah. I think we've got a really good sense of. Um, your relationship with risk and also the fact that you took a huge risk at the age of 12 and have really thought about that um, quite in, in depth over the years. But I'm curious about excuses that you have used uh, or that you have made for others mm. in your life. And actually, I thought this was really revealing because uh, you you said actually it has to do with your relationship with money. And I'm so glad that you said this because I think this is the kind of thing that this is the kind of thing that people keep in the dark. Mm-mm. I thought very when I was answering your questions um, prior to coming on, I thought very hard about whether I wanted to reveal this because, as you say, it's a it's a big taboo, isn't it? But I um, I've been in the creative industries most of my life, and I, I would say that psychotherapy is more of an art than a science. So I would class it as as a part of the creative industries in a way. Um, and historically, they're quite low paid. 
And I have always had, I mean, I've always really enjoyed it. And it's a priv- privilege to have done what I've done. And I really, um, but because of my disability, my relationship with, with my disability and money are intimately linked. I've always used money as a compensatory mechanism. And it used to drive my parents bananas because I used to go, I can't walk. You know, if I, if, if I want that jacket, I'm going to have it. Or if I want to go on this holiday, I'm going to have it. And I was quite a, yeah, it was quite um, difficult for them because they come from quite frugal backgrounds, quite, you know, they're quite, they always have to get value for money. And I had none of that concern. And also, um this is probably getting a bit profound, but it's the truth. I was in, when I was in the disabled school, um, and I write about this in the book, a lot of the pupils that I was at school with um, died quite quite early on. So at a time when most people are, are feeling invulnerable and immortal as teenagers, I really understood and internalized the fact that life is short. The fact that life is really short and really fleeting. So that gave me, for want of a better word, a very hedonistic mindset of like, if I want to do something today, I'm going to do it. But that led to, yeah, kind of very, very difficult situations around money. Um, and I've I've worked through it and I've resolved it. But but it's it's still a psychological tender spot for me, I think. Did being around children who were dying, did, well, I'm, I'm assuming that it just made you, made you look at your own mortality and maybe, again, you perhaps didn't say it out loud at the time and perhaps didn't even know necessarily in your head, but you, I guess it's like that thing, isn't it, when you're waiting to go and have a test <laughs> and you see the person, and like my surname begins with G, so like you're waiting for the Bs and Cs and Ds to go in, but you know your turn's coming. Did it feel like in a really morbid way did it feel like that a bit so it was like so I'm going to live in the short term absolutely absolutely you couldn't have hit the nail more squarely on the head I just thought well given given that I know know absolutely that life is short no I'm going to enjoy it as much as I can the flip side of that situation is that I take a great deal of pleasure in life I've Mm -hmm. learned how to enjoy the things that I enjoy really profoundly but but yeah I just you know for 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 a lot of people even my friends I mean I'm in midlife now and you know my friends are the same age obviously but you can tell by the way they talk about it that death is still something that happens to everyone else not them death is still something that's not ever you know it's over in a room somewhere but me unfortunately because of the situation I went through as a teenager I haven't been able to avoid it. So, but the flip side of that is I do have quite an enjoyable short-term kind of approach to life. And it hasn't, I'm well, you said that you've overcome, you've sort of overcome the issues with money. I'm sure there were a lot of people listening going off for crying out loud, Emma. Ask him how, how did he create more of an equilibrium around his spending and his, uh, the way that he spent money? Because I think a lot of us, maybe not all the time but there will be those days where you in where you just buy something you don't really think it through but it's meeting a need it's not because of what you're actually buying 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, I, I don't go to a 12-step program but it's, it's something I borrowed from a 12-step program, um, Debtors Anonymous, which is where they tell you how to do a daily spending log. So you write, and, and at first I found it, and I don't do it anymore, but I found it a real, um, found it a real bind because for the first few months that you do it, you have to write down absolutely every single thing that you buy. So like a stick of gum, uh, a coffee, whatever you have. And, but what what I learned looking back over it over the three or four months that I did it was that I would routinely underestimate what things cost or mm. I would or I would round them down, you know. So actually, you know, it was very I could see where my overspending was, you know, so it was quite mortifying to see it in black and white. Like, it was quite upsetting. So in a sense, holding yourself to account helps you to correct your behavior because you realize that you're yeah you're just routinely deluding yourself oh no I didn't I didn't do that or I sent that clothing back when you didn't you, you know you left it in the bottom of the wardrobe or, so it was kind of mortifying but very useful it's analysis isn't it it's collecting your data and being honest because there's one thing to collect your data but you also have to be really honest with what you're inputting <laughs> yes yes you can't kid yourself otherwise it doesn't work you can't, I mean, I've talked openly on this podcast about really struggling with, I say struggling with my weight and I have a real problem with that phrase anyway, because I didn't struggle with my weight. Truthfully, I had an issue with overeating mm. and the effect on my body of that was that I would gain weight that I didn't want. But I, it took me a very, very long time to piece together, to be accountable for the behavior that led to the results. I would, mm. I put so many excuses between this thing that happened over here at mealtime and this thing that happened over here when I got on the scales and the only way I was able to confront it and overcome it a bit like you with money was to analyze it be honest and be accountable and realize which is what I was ignoring or in denial about my actions had a direct impact on mm. the outcome and so it helps you to see the trigger doesn't it 100 percent. and you in your case did you see that it had an emotional trigger, your relationship with food, or that you would use it in a particular way? Sometimes. Sometimes there was an emotional trigger. Um, but I don't... I, I, Again, it's one of those things that I've, I've looked at enough to be able to see it coming, mm, mm. but I haven't, I haven't looked at it forensically to go, ah, okay, it comes from that particular whatever. But... Um, and it's one of those things, isn't it, that it is, um, you know, it's a, it's a continuous thing. It's not ever resolved, you know, fully. It's something that you have to monitor kind of going forwards all the time, isn't it? A hundred percent. So when I think actually it's quite good sometimes, like if there's ever a quote unquote bad day, I actually now really appreciate them because what I appreciate about a bad day is I know that all it will take to recover, again, in inverted commas, mm, mm, mm. is one day. Mm. Because I've done the work, I've done the analysis, I know yeah. what 
what normal should feel like. And so I can come back to it really quickly. Whereas years ago, a bad day would have led to three, four, five, six months, possibly even a year plus of just freewheeling. Yeah. Yeah. And you just sort of go, well, you haven't got the tools in place to take you back to that pre, pre, what's the mm. word, binge or that, that pre binge yeah. state. But now you've got the, the learning and you've also got, um, you know that you can be different. You know that you can behave in a different way. So you've got mm. the choice. So do you, is that the same with you for money? Do you feel like yeah. every now and again, you'll spend something and you'll think, oh, work? <laughs> very much so. Very much so. I don't want to sit there and pretend to your listeners that I've got it licked because I haven't, <laughs> you know. And actually, it's really funny. Um, when I was doing clinical work, I'm not at the moment, but when I was seeing clients, um, very often in your first sessions, you could see that they would project onto you as the therapist the idea that you somehow had it all figured out. And I just wanted to say, I didn't because it's not very professional, but I just wanted to say, like, I'm in the same boat as you are. You know, I'm learning in the same way that you are. There's no hierarchy here. I'm not a guru. I'm just here to listen and to pay attention and to, you know, to try and offer... Yeah, I can offer my attention and my compassion, but I haven't in any way figured this out. You know, I'm not I'm not a guru at all. I think that's really interesting. I was chatting to Jodie Karras from The Self Space recently, and I said that I think sometimes when it comes to therapists, you assume that their mental health, this abstract, oh. their brain, whatever, is they're able to do the work that they do because if you were to take their mental health and turn it into a physical thing, a gentleman in tails would walk into the room and it would be on a silver tray under a cloche and it would sort of there'd be a, a low very resonant hum coming from it and it would be pure and untouched like like I love that diamond. image. I love that image <laughs> and that, that's why therapists are equipped to be mm. the person giving therapy because their mental health is intact and perfect and has never mm. been tinged by depression or anxiety or any of these things and it's actually only... <laughs> it's not that yeah and actually I think very often therapists go into being therapists because they've had their own profound challenges in that way and that's what sparked their interest mm. and that's what made them want to train so actually I think my vulnerability was my strength as a therapist I really do my, I mean, obviously, as a therapist, it's not about you, it's about the client. So you don't talk about yourself. But I was very open to the fact that, you know, it's obvious when you see me physically, that I've had struggles, and that the world has has sometimes dealt with me unfairly. So, you know, I'm starting from a place of vulnerability. So I, mm. I hope I hope that helped my clients to be able to be more open with me. How do you feel the world has treated you? And I ask you this because a friend of mine's husband is in a wheelchair and she was explaining the eye contact thing, how mm. people won't look, people will pretend they haven't seen you. Eye contact can sometimes, they might be talking to you, but they they might talk to her, but not her husband. Mm. And mm. it's a whole layer that you wouldn't know about unless you knew about it. Mm. Mm. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about for listeners and for me as well is what can we do to break those barriers down, if you like, and to to make everybody feel welcome, even if they have physical challenges? 
that we don't acknowledge. And again, I was walking through Green Park the other day and there was a gentleman walking towards me and he was blind. And people were just, you know what London's like at the moment. Mm, mm. I just wanted to flank him and get him onto Piccadilly because I can't imagine what it must be like not being able to see, hearing the sights and sounds of London and also knowing that someone's probably on their phone and might barge into you at any moment because they're not looking up. Mm -mm. It's it's a really good question. It's something I've thought about a lot because obviously, you know, as I age, I, I may transition into a wheelchair myself. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have the surgery was my um, consultants at the time were saying, when this child gets their adult body mass, they will be pulled off their feet into a wheelchair. Now, obviously, life in a wheelchair is 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 not bad at all. But you know, um, it was something at that age I didn't want. And I think what you were saying about your friend and the way he's treated, um, I was really frightened about about not being, not having a space, not being looked at, not being regarded. And I do find that because I'm able to stand. People look at me, people perceive me in a very different way. I'm not ignored in mm -hmm. the way that you are when you're disabled because, because I'm there in someone's eye line. I'm not. Um... But as to what we do, that's a bit more of a difficult question because I think there are so many structural inequalities for dis disabled people still. And there's so much uneasiness around disabled people in the world and there are like you were explaining well like you were talking about in your um, previous response you know there's so much conscious and unconscious prejudice towards the disabled and the built environment is still so difficult to navigate like for example I can't use the tube I have to get cabs everywhere I can't you know so there I don't think there's any easy answer I, I would say that the best way, if you're encountering someone with a disability, is just openness to it and ask questions. If there's something you don't know to, or, or is making you feel uncomfortable, ask, ask them. Mm -hmm. Ask them. Like, It's like with someone's pronouns now. Ask mm -hmm. them how they want to be addressed. Ask them what you can do. You know, just, just try not to be embarrassed. Try not to be wrong-footed by it and just mm -hmm. be open and approachable. And I, I always really like it when um, I had a, a a friend of mine, her son is about nine or 10, and he was asking me what was wrong with me. And her, his parents were really embarrassed, but I really liked being able to tell him. And obviously I simplified my language and I and I, I made it an uh, uh, exchange that he could understand. But I really liked, I really appreciated him him asking me because then you can start to have a conversation. Well, because it sounds like oftentimes it's people will see it, but won't say it. Yes, exactly. And as you were saying about the blind man in Green Park, people just scatter to avoid. They mm. just don't want to. Be, oftentimes their anxiety means they don't want to be anywhere near it. So their their way of dealing with the problem is just to pretend that it doesn't exist or, you know, rather than addressing that person. And as you were saying, asking them if they needed assistance or, you know, it really mm. is quite simple. Just, just, just ask. Yeah. What's the best way that I can help? Mm, exactly. Okay. Well, that that's good advice to share. <laughs> um, we obviously we talk about obstacles on this podcast, and um, your answer to this one was was very 
robust. It was quite a long answer because it isn't just about the physical obstacles. There have been emotional ones too. So I don't know what um, you you necessarily want to pick pick on specifically, but I was really interested about the idea of disability and sexuality and how those two fundamentally two fundamental things about you that make you in air quotes different have yeah. been obstacles that you've had to overcome not just in in the discussions that we've had so far not just for you but actually for other, for other people it's been a huge it's kind of been the defining challenge of my life that that intersectional identity i remember when i was coming out to my mum which was a surprise to absolutely nobody and my parents and my parents were wonderful about it you know my mum was fantastic but I remember saying I was really really upset um, finally acknowledging that this thing was not going to pass it wasn't a passing phase this was this was me this is who I was and I said to her like how am I going to do it how am I going to do this like I can be one or, or the other thing but not both I can do you know, I, I can have one thing, one challenge, because I didn't see anybody in the media who looked like me. I didn't see anybody who walked like me. Um, and in my images of gay culture, there was just nobody who looked like who looked like me. So I was really frightened that I was going to be on my own and that I wasn't mm -hmm. going to get to it, that my sexuality would always remain theoretical. And that I would all so what did it matter really if I called myself gay or, or because I thought I wasn't ever going to get the chance to express it. Um and I think to be quite honest, I think things haven't changed as much as they need to. I think there's a real ambivalence um towards disabled people expressing any kind of sexuality, let alone homosexuality. I mean, it's really yeah, I think it's really problematic for a lot of people. A lot of people um and a writer who i was speaking to at an event a year or so ago who i won't name asked me what i was writing and they said and they said oh yeah you don't think about disabled people having sex do you and i was like well i do <laughs> because it's my life you know clearly it's not the only thing i do i've been married for a long time so it's kind of not not the highest priority any longer but 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 it's a huge part of my identity. It's an innate part of myself, as it is for for everyone. And if you deny your sexuality, you're denying a part of your humanity. So all I want is the chance to express that. And one of the things I say in the book is that the thing I wanted the most was simply to be seen by society for who I was. Mm. And it it's just I think we've got an awful long way to go. And I think actually the age of Instagram and the rise of social media have made things more complicated because, because there's a real focus on physical perfection in a way that maybe there wasn't before. Maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like with all the filtering of reality and everyone presenting a very curated, perfect image of themselves, it feels like um, yeah, a, a particular moment. I think it depends where you go on Instagram. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the social media platforms do definitely favor perfection. And look, as a 45-year-old woman who does makeup videos on Instagram and doesn't have any issue going online without makeup on, 
I, I, and, and I don't use any kind of filters because to be honest, Emma, I don't know quite how. <laughs> <laughs> and there are other things I need to learn how to do. Exactly. So, so I, so for me, I'm like, well, that's not what I engage with. But I think for younger people, absolutely, you're right. This idea of perfectionism is, is actually dangerous. But then on the other side of it, I think for every account that is, showing perfect abs a six-pack or a tiny waist or a, a brazilian butt lift or mm-hmm. not brazilian butt lift but you know like a booty yeah, or yeah. anything like yeah, that yeah. that's meant to be perfect there's somebody else in a bikini showing stretch marks or there's yeah. somebody else showing what a bigger body looks like in a bikini yeah. and so actually it, it's a sort of it's a um it does seem to be a bit more democratic, but it's the algorithm, I think, that's the problem, because it's what you look at, it's going to show you more of. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get those things reinforced to yourself. And I think you're right, Emma, I think, you know, there is a, a greater movement towards body, body positivity, which is fantastic. And I'm so glad to be around in, in a time when that's part of the conversation. Um, but I think when you're talking about gay culture I think it's slightly different I think there's a we have a lot of a, a longer way to go I don't want to punch down on my community at all but my experience as a disabled gay man has been yeah very difficult and at times quite lonely because my you know my mum said to me um driving back to school when I come out to her she said I'm just so worried for you Emmett because I want you to find love, I want you to find a fulfilling life. And from what I've seen of the gay community, it really um, emphasises and fetishises almost physical perfection. And quite clearly, I wasn't there. So um, I'm very lucky. You know, I've found my tribe and I've, I'm married. But for a long time, um, it didn't feel like there was a place for me. And it's interesting, in 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 a defense of that writer who said that to you, it's a little bit like the comment of, I don't see you like that. That's mm, something that mm. was said a year ago, but in 10 years' time, the yeah. vocabulary will have changed the, and the, the understanding will have changed because you're absolutely right. These things are still happening in the dark for want of a better expression. Mm, we mm. might be seeing lots of lots more body types and we might be more inclusive. We might be more accepting, but you're absolutely right. There are still certain things that just they're not just not talked about they're not seen and I think mm, in a visual mm. world if you're not seeing it you would so your knee-jerk reaction was oh yeah you didn't you wouldn't really you wouldn't know that happened and as you say it wasn't maliciously at mm. all it was really well-meaning and it was curious but yeah. it, I, was, I was I was just really interested because I was like well well I do because it's my lived experience <laughs> you know it's my everyday yeah so. um and when I asked you about your uh, greatest success, it does come out, it does come back to that about being out and being very happily gay and married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was talking to a friend um, yesterday and I, I'm not sure how this came out, out, but I mean, apart from having written a book, my life is so ordinary now. And I mean that in the best sense. You know, it's the kind of ordinary I really cherish and I never could have imagined as a very scared and lonely queer teenager, I, I never imagined that I would ever get to the point where, you know, my life was just blissfully ordinary. <laughs> so it's, it really it really feels like a privilege to have got here. What does blissfully ordinary mean, though? Well, it means having people you love, 
having having a job that you love um having a relationship that i never thought i would have access to you know i i i love the person i married it's a good good job that i love the person i married but i love the person i married um i have i have a really good life and it's the kind of life i couldn't have even envisaged you know as as in the in the times that i write about in the book you know i was so lonely and i was so filled with self-loathing and internalized ableism and i know you've spoken about eating disorders on here but i write about having quite significant eating disorder myself for a period of time because i didn't know how to express quite how unhappy i was feeling and the only way i felt like i could do it was to take my emotional frustration out on my body you know what mm. I, wa I wanted to punish myself i knew i wasn't fat but i wanted to punish myself i, I wanted to damage myself and, and so to have come from that terribly terribly low po low point to sort of having a having a lovely life i just i feel that's really successful i think there's something to be said for and I'm going to pull this together really clumsily because I haven't really articulated this before. But, um, and I think the smoothest way is to talk about myself, which I don't like doing on the podcast, but bear with me. Mm -hmm, of course. I think one of the reasons why I struggled with my mental health for a long time and sort of hit the depths that I did is because I always, deep down, I believed things could be different. Mm -hmm. My frustration and the way it all came out in the ways that it did well, because I didn't know how, and I hadn't put two and two together that actually I could make things different. I kind of, I weirdly thought that it would happen. And when I saw other people having good lives, I thought it just happened to them. They were lucky. I hadn't put together. So I think listening to what you're saying, you hear all of these things about what your life might be like. You have these doctor's appointments as a kid. Mm, when mm. he when he reaches his adult weight, he'll be pulled off his his feet. I mean, that's that's a really intense thing to hear as a child. And I'm sure there are a catalogue of things like that that you must have heard, all mm. of which would have attached themselves to you physically as a weight, sort of like you can't have, this Absolutely. won't happen. And maybe, but there's obviously something about you, Emmett, whereby you want to defy the odds. You want it to not be true because yes, absolutely. you never accepted it. And I think sometimes those tumultuous, see, I told you it's going to be clumsy. I no, think no, sometimes no. the really tumultuous mental health issues that people go through are resisting what we're told it, it should be and fighting mm. for what we want it to be. It, it's like the... We, we all internalise narratives about what success looks like. Mm. That you, you do have agency. You do, you do, it, it can often feel like you don't have any agency. Mm. And, as a, and as a teenager, I really felt like I didn't have any agency. But I do have a certain amount of power over the choices I make. And I do have, you know... Way, ways to navigate things yeah um i one of my funnest questions to ask my guests is to tell me about a time when you were wrong and emma having spoken to you i don't believe that you ever have been but go on oh, you, no. said that, you said that your partner would uh would have a list <laughs> <laughs> so so many um 
Oh, goodness. Let's think. Well, um, you said to me, you said to me that um, where I've been most wrong is all of the frightened, closeted, closeted years I spent believing that a life like mine would be impossible and that you felt like you wasted so much time and spent yeah, a lot that, of energy hating. That's exactly it. I think where I was wrong, and I think, again, this was more of a product of my environment and the culture that I was grown grown up in, I, I believed that my body was wrong. I believed all the messages that I was given that my body was wrong and that I was somehow to blame for it. You know, kind of disability is, well, not now, but it was framed sort of as a moral failing. And the language the doctors used is the medical model of disability talks about fixing. So you internalize this idea that everyone else is perfect. So therefore you're imperfect and you need to be fixed. And I just, I'm now, well, obviously I'm now realizing that there's no such thing as perfect. Nobody's perfect. Disabled or able-bodied, nobody's perfect. And as we've talked about previously, perfection is kind of a false god and it's always moving. You know, it's always somewhere else. So I really, I really feel for the person that I was. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was for the person that I had been, kind of for him, because I wasted so much time caring what other people thought, hating myself with furious energy and actually making myself really, really unwell in the process. So I really feel that I was, you know, and and seeing people, you know, in the public eye now, disabled people like wonderful, wonderful Rosie Jones, who just has such a brilliant, who's also gay, you know, she's a, a lesbian woman who's also disabled and she has such a different attitude to the attitude that I had. You know, her attitude is, my disability is an intrinsic and wonderful part of who I am. And if I'd had somebody like that to look at when I was growing up, I may have got here a bit sooner because she's such an inspiration to me and such, you know, she just, she's just out there living her life. Mm. And she gets an enormous, a lot of, enormous amount of abuse, sadly, because she's in the public eye, but she's still doing it. She's still out there. She's saying, you know, my disability is an is an intrinsic part of who I am. It's not a problem, you know. And before you mentioned Rosie, uh, you the way that you were describing the situation was reminding me. There's a brilliant scene in it was the Will and Grace reboot. I don't oh, know yeah. if you watched it. I did. Where essentially Will, I mean. I'm a 45-year-old woman, so uh, when I was growing up, uh, the storyline about somebody coming out in a TV show, whether it was a drama or a comedy, it was a big deal. It was tackled very mm. sensitively because it was mm. it was still quite taboo back then. And there's this great scene where he's chatting to a younger gay man, and he was like, "What's your coming out story?" And he's like, "Oh, my th- my parents threw me a party," <laughs> and it's just how things have changed so much. Yeah, yeah. And I think you you obviously were on the kind of you were graded on a curve, if you like, and because mm. of you, your experience, and because of your you telling your story, you're inevitably going to make it easier for somebody next, well, ne- somebody younger. Yeah, that's my hope. That really is my hope. Um, There's a wonderful quote from Toni Morrison, the writer, where she says, if you can't find the book that you want to read, then you must be the one to write it. And that was really my inspiration for writing the book. I thought, well, what was the book that I would have needed and would have wanted to read as a frightened, queer, disabled teenager? And 
it's really the book that I've written. So I hope that it does help and I hope that it moves the conversation on a bit. Do you, does somebody need to be queer and or disabled to read it and to take value from it? No, absolutely not. Um, I think really my hope is that it's a more universal story as well. It's, it's a story of a family. It's about love. It's about friendship. It's quite funny, I hope. And it's also about kind of our universal need to belong. Because whatever we call ourselves, whatever label we're most comfortable with, we all want to connect to one another in whatever whatever that looks like, in whatever mm. way. You know, some people are asexual, some people don't have, you know, they don't have the goals that I have. They don't want to get married. They don't want to, they don't want to do those things. And that's fine. But the common experience is, I think, that we all want to connect. Mm. We all want to, we all want to matter. So yeah, the story is about is about that more than it's about my personal identities. Um, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you, what is it that makes you feel hopeful about the future? Oh, I, I remember what I wrote for this one. Uh, and this is where I get a little bit emotional. Um, it's my stepsons, really, because they're just, they're people I never expected to have in my life. You know, I never expected to have children. And I just, you know, they're they're wonderful young men. They're they're really, really um, interesting, ethical, politically engaged, um, caring. You know, that gives me hope. Sometimes it feels, at the moment, like hope is a bit of a radical act. But we all have to have hope, you know. And 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 more generally, I think the younger generation do give me hope. When you look at you know things like um, the climate activism movement and the younger generation holding our politicians to account and being much more alert, alert and awake than I was because the stakes are really high at the moment. So mm. that that gives me hope that people, you know, care. It's funny because I think they get a really hard time. It's either they are the future, they are going to make all the important changes or it's that, oh, they're so rude and stubbornly and they're always <laughs> stuck on their phones. You can't, there's nowhere in between. Yeah. I feel so bad for them. Me too, me too, because as you say, it's a really, seems to be a really polarising thing, doesn't it? It's either, you know, you can't buy a house because you bought, eat too much avocado toast. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And they're under enormous pressure yeah, in a way it's... that maybe I wasn't. So, Well, it was so lovely to chat to you. They sound oh, like Emma. fine young men. It was so, such um, a pleasure. It was so nice to connect. And thank you for sharing your story so honestly and for being so... Uh, yeah, just just being honest, I think uh, this felt like a very real conversation and I really, really appreciate that from my guests. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It really was a delight. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gun Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.